Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I'm going to tell you what's going on. Basically, these media people are out here. Not all of you guys, but most of you guys are out here exploiting the black people. You're recording us when we're getting tear gas, when we're running, when we're yelling, when we're pissed off, when we're cursing. But you are not recording the people who are protesting peacefully. You're not recording the motivating chants we yell to the cops. You know, covering politics is so much bullshit, you know, especially covering campaigns. And, you know, you can sort of lose and forget, like, why you got into this business in the first place. I don't always feel like this, but this is one of those stories where you actually feel like you have a heightened responsibility to get it right. To me, what we're experiencing right now is as journalists and covering this sort of what is being contested by the state and by, frankly, propagandists, you have this incredible responsibility uh, to get it right. In the midst of a global pandemic, we're also nearing two weeks of intensifying national protests about the death of George Floyd. There's a national debate about protests, about policing, about racism, and about whether the systems we have in place are up to the challenge of the moment we're in. It's literally my job and the job of all journalists to get it right. I feel it more than, you know, almost any story I've covered in a really long time to get it right. That's why I've got Chief Washington correspondent Ryan Lizard joining me. He's been on the ground, right, where a lot of the action is happening. The White House. I'm Ryan. Take care. Okay, nice to meet you. I'm Eugene Daniels in for Scott Bland, and this is Nerdcast. Well, yeah, Eugene, I know you're supposed to be asking the questions, but (laughs) you wrote a little bit about this on Twitter the other day and just what it's like personally to be both a journalist covering this, but also kind of living it in a different way. I thought it was a really uh, heartfelt and difficult to read thread. And what what, what was the reaction like to, I guess, tell people a little bit about what you were saying, but I would love to hear what the reaction was like. Yeah, thank you. Um... So it had been after honestly, like a kind of like a what felt like a panic attack. Um, wow. I had been in, in in completely in all of the news, like we all are as as political journalists, um, reading every single thing, looking at every single video. Um, and my partner says that I was he could hear me just like sobbing 
openly and loudly oh in the back. Um, he was like, you're working. Um, so he had to kind of cut a meeting short and come back and like see what was going on. And he just saw me like sobbing on the bed and I had like sweat through my clothes. Um, and it took him a while to calm me down. Um, and I think it just felt like this overwhelming grief of, you know, when, when America's having a conversation about race and racism, you know, black people live that. And so you hit it, it hits you, it can hit you in a different way. And for some reason, this time, I think it has to do a lot with like the fact that I'm stuck in my house, right? And so I'm, I'm not really distracted by the world in a way that I would be um, otherwise. Um, and so I kind of took to the internet, which isn't always the most healthy thing. <laughs> but I was hoping that people would, I could give people a little bit of a glimpse into like what the conversation is about, right? Like it's not, it. there are things that happen every day to me. I am a, I am 6'3", I live in Washington, D.C., I live in Capitol Hill, my coworker said, "Dress well." Like there are, <laughs> I uh, I would agree with that. There are there are all these things. But the bar is pretty low at political. It is. That's true. That's true. It is pretty low. But but the people I think think that insulates me in some way, right? Like, and it doesn't. Um, and so I think it was mostly just to give people kind of a, a view into that. I did not think it was going to do what it did, but it, it, I guess it went quote unquote viral which was a little bit shocking. And Eugene, uh, I woke up this morning to a thread that you shared that was deeply personal, and I want to read it. And I think the reaction has been, yeah, yeah. interestingly, a lot of people realizing that they had never heard that before. Like, they had never they had never been told about, you know, a, uh, how I, as a black kid, yeah. um, the teachers were scared of me when I walked in. Um and told my mother that later, right? Like, told my mom that I, they were scared of me when I walked into the, their room as a child, right? Like, people, they hadn't thought about the fact that, you know, sometimes women clutch their purses closer to them when I walk on an elevator with them, right? Like, I've been asked yeah. by not just police, but people who maybe they live in this neighborhood in Capitol Hill. Like, do you, like, what are you doing here? Do you live here? You know what I mean? So it's like things like that that people just don't think about that I deal with on a daily basis. For reporters, we're often taught from the very beginning of our careers two really important things. First, don't become the story. <laughs> um, and second, keep the personal out of it. And so in this hyper-visible world, I've been trying to figure out like how much I, of my personal and private life and experiences I can share. And it's been a little awkward. And so this week was really, really hard. Just on a lighter note, can I ask you, what was the most awkward uh, text or email from a white friend? <laughs> And don't say what, and don't say, and don't say me. (laughs) It was Ryan. No, I will. I won't say this. I got this one feels safe because I got it from a couple of different people. Um, But I know quite a few former journalists uh, also. Yeah. And one said they were writing an editorial in like a newspaper, like a local newspaper, but they wanted me to help them craft it. Yeah. And they were like, and it was just like, (laughs) <laughs> it's one of those things that you hear from from black people often where it's like, oh, well, no, I don't want to, I'm not going to craft that for you. Like, there is, like, I'm already doing, like, I, I did my part. I let you guys, I let you in. You know, I, 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 I 
was completely honest in a way that I was actually nervous about professionally, right? Like in a way when, you know, journalists are supposed to be completely objective and leave yourself out of the conversation and don't be the story. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept getting that and they're just so cringeworthy. And it, they people mean well. I think people yeah. mean well. But it's yeah. like, it is, it is just, it's... It's it's a little cringeworthy. I know. I know. I feel like I feel kind of bad to tell on them, but it's a little awkward. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons I wrote that is because it felt so uneasy in this country. You've been out the past few nights in D.C. covering the protests, um, which is you know you've seen them devolve from you know the kind of early afternoon or early evening protest to kind of what we've been seeing and and on and have taken up a lot of the oxygen, which is the, you know, the scary back and forth between police and and protesters. Talk a little bit about that. And then I want to talk about uh, where our political leaders are. I mean, the first thing that is so obvious, but um, is uh, so central to these protests is, you know, other protests I've covered in D.C. for, you know, years and years, the police are just kind of there as nobody's really paying attention to the police. But Mm -hmm. when they're for something about climate change or in the Obama era, you were protesting, you know, some piece of legislation, the police are always there. There's always crowd control, right? But they're not, nobody's really thinking twice. When the issue itself is police brutality and you have big crowds in dc that require that just you know bring out the typical police presence suddenly those police are the focus and the the Mm. the target of, of of the protest because the issue is police brutality and that's i know that sounds really obvious but the central dynamic then of these protests becomes these back and forths the police and the protesters squaring off right Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter really what department you're from. If you're wearing a police uniform, you are the symbol for many of the of those protesters of police brutality. And not only are you the symbol, not only are you the symbol, you're also like your actions represent that whole yeah. thing, right? Like you're the police are there and so whatever they do, you can either prove the point exactly. that protesters are, you know, rightfully, you know, talking about, right, like police brutality, or not, right? And and we've seen that as well. Yep. Ryan, I want to get into your piece that is out now that it kind of opens with a comparison Tiananmen Square. Give give the people a a glimpse into into what, where where you saw that comparison. It struck me that the the timing was kind of interesting, you know, this week uh, is the 31st anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And, you know, as long as I've been, you know, covering politics, the Tiananmen Square massacre is this example about how America is different, right? It's, It's this example that American officials and human rights activists use when they want to show what happens in a in a tyrannical society <laughs> where mm-hmm. the government gets to shape um, history? You know, to me, it's always just this kind of like very cl- you know classically Orwellian example, right? Of the government cracking down on protesters, killing a bunch of people, and then suppressing uh, the, the the core facts uh, about what happened for you know for three decades, right? And 
you know, I think over the years, a lot of politicians I've covered, it's easy to feel really good about uh, yourself when you can point to an example like that, right? And that, you know, that kind of thing doesn't happen in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I started thinking that after what happened on Monday when, you know, I was, I was down there and Monday was so different from Sunday. Monday was overwhelmingly peaceful. And we had this moment where we all watched this on TV. You didn't have to be down there. The images on TV were, in fact, may have given you access to, you know, you know better vantage points. The park police attacked with tear gas and batons and rubber bullets people assembling peacefully to clear a park so that Donald Trump could walk across the street and hold a Bible in the air. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that, that was sort of bad enough. Um, I mean, they, they didn't kill anyone, so you, you know, we've got to be careful about like, comparing it to the Tiananmen Square, but really my comparison is what happened next, which is the, the effort to sort of deny like, what we all saw um, mm. And this crazy debate about did they use tear gas or did they use some other chemical munition, which um, you know is frankly a silly a, a silly debate. And you know the answer is yes, tear gas is this kind of like catch-all phrase for chemical agents used to control riots. So whatever kind of smoke or pepper spray, right, or, right. you know, it's fucking tear gas, right? Right. <laughs> you know? right. Call, it, call it what you want. And, for, but, for people that get hit with it, they they tear they start to tear up. Yeah, if it's if it doesn't hurt right. you, it's what's the point? <laughs> because right, the right. idea was uh, somehow I think people were trying to argue that they used something that it was just like an air cannon or something. Like the, you know, the, mm. the, the whole point is to you know to attack the mucous membranes and make it so you can't move and you do what the officer tells you to do. So I thought it was just crazy that there was this effort by people to just deny that tear gas was used, and to sort of conflate with what happened on Sunday where there was violence with what was going on on Monday and to argue that these people were cleared out because they were violent. You can go online now and, and you'll find people who believe an entire alternative account of what happened yeah. just a few days ago. And on Wednesday, the press secretary said it from the podium, right? Like talking about how this wasn't tear gas. And I think making it, 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 I think it became very clear to the White House that this wasn't playing well, right? And so they are trying to find a way to make it less bad. Like, it, like there is no more watched, and one of our um, beloved colleagues, Tim Alberta, tweeted this, there's no more watched area than the White House, and especially around this time, right? Like, there's yeah. no more, there's no area where there's more cameras or people are paying more attention to. So it is, it trying to get, pe- trying to convince the American people and the media that that's not what happened is that's a feat, right? Like that, <laughs> that one, that one may not, that one's not going to fly. And I think, yeah, they're they're finding they are struggling with that as well because I, what they wanted was to have President Trump in front of the church and to speak to, you know, evangelical Christians in some way. Yes. Yes. But the planning of getting him there and how to get him there. And I think it was for a lot of people, it was kind of shocking to be watching him do the speech. And at the same time, hearing 
the canisters going off and hearing people yelling and screaming. It was just like this very strange dichotomy. To sort of watch that up close and then have the government sort of in this united front deny the basic facts that you know that's what put me in the frame of mind of Tiananmen Square not that the attack was necessarily as brutal but that the cover up the 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 effort to get people to believe some to to believe what the, what they saw wasn't actually what they saw that's some like you know that that's some serious uh 1984 kind of stuff that you know we we throw those <laughs> those kind of analogies around and um this is the first time where I've really thought it was that kind of um, scary, you know, that, mm. that there's just this entire political movement right now devoted to denying what actually happened down there and obsessed with the difference between different chemical munitions used to incapacitate uh, protesters. Ryan, you know, as you've, as you've been out there... You've been talking to a lot of different people. Yeah. And you recorded a conversation you had um, that kind of got at the level of media distrust that people have as they are going out there to protest. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. This this was at the White House on Tuesday night, probably just after midnight. The police, um, after a day that was completely peaceful, there was a small group still there and a couple of people got kind of rowdy threw some water bottles and started to shake the new fence that they put up and the police again used uh tear gas and and cleared out the area uh temporarily and the aftermath of that there was a little bit of an altercation between a journalist and a demonstrator and there is some sensitivity, you know, depending who, who it is among some of the demonstrators, if you're recording them. You know, some people get pretty pissed off if uh, if they don't feel like you should be recording them. You know, one guy yelled at me last night mm. saying, this isn't a fucking parade. Get that camera out of my face. <laughs> He's right, definitely not a parade. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so so there, there, there are a lot of those, you know, the... the um, the first night I was there, Sunday, Sunday night, a, a colleague, a, a friend of mine at the, at the New York Times um, suggested not wearing my media credential because he said that the, uh, a lot of the people were really anti-press and he was getting you know, hassled quite a bit. And he suggested it wasn't a good idea to keep it on because the cops won't care anyway. They'll, you know, if they're going to, if they want to, uh, they're not, you know, they're pretty indiscriminate. If you're in, in a place you shouldn't be, they'll tear gas you whether you've got a press badge on or not. Mm. But I did have it on uh, on on Tuesday night, and I was walking down the street, sort of uh, chasing this crowd that had formed because there was a some kind of argument that it was too far away to tell exactly what happened, but it seemed like it escalated maybe into an actual fight between a, a journalist and a, and a protester mm. because the protester didn't want to be recorded, and so I was just asking different people like. You know, do you know what happened? Do you know what happened? And, you know, most people didn't want to talk at all. It was, you know, but then, then these, these two young women, they were, you know, we had a really long, interesting conversation. And a lot of it was about the, the press. But do you see any of the media doing a good job in getting your story out? No, they're not. Well, they didn't, they didn't want their, they want their name to be protester, right? And they didn't want to be on video. Yeah. 
they, they, yeah, they didn't want me to re- record with a video, but but um, they were okay with me using audio. Is your first name or no? Professional. <laughs> code name? Yeah, that's my code name. They just, you know, I was asking them, do you think that the press has done a good job at all in sort of getting your message out and, you know, and showing the world what, what's going on? And they were, you know, which is probably, you know, which I think I agree with. I think that, you know, not universally, but I think in general, the press has been more good than bad mm. to what these, what these guys um, are trying to show and 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 what they're trying to shine a light on they didn't agree with that at all though oh, they, uh, really they, they, you know not for the most part i mean they were being polite all they, they record is when something violent is happening the whole time they're standing there during the peaceful protest as soon as they see somebody get rowdy they run with them with the camera they put the camera in their face they're like i don't care i have the right not even talking to me as a human being but just they just thought that um the emphasis on violence and on you know, from their perspective, it was like they could spend all day peacefully chanting George Floyd's name or Black Lives Matter or whatever it is. And that could go on for eight hours. But if for five minutes, a few people throw water bottles at the cops and then the cops, you know, react with tear gas, that is what is going to be emphasized. And, you know, I can't really argue with that. Right. You know, yeah. that, that that's that is true, and you know we were, in, you know that conflict is always going to lead. If it bleeds, it leads. Like that's something that, yeah. that you know I used to work on local TV, and I definitely have heard that from a lot of different people over my time. So that was a big frustration for them. Yeah, and uh, you know they were both twenty six years old, li- live in live in DC, um, and I was you know I was trying to explain them on the on the recording, saying look you know most, what most reporters will tell you is that if you're out in a public place doing something like this publicly, you're not gonna you don't have a right to, uh, to you know to tell the media not not to record you. Someone might do it out of just to be polite if it seems like a uh, a sensitive uh, moment. But that I thought that was really interesting. Just that sort of you know we in the press. <laughs> just don't even think twice, right? About someone out out in public, and, and you know, and, and you can rec- you can record them. That's literally your job. Um, but for some of the protesters, that was they didn't think that that was necessarily the way way it should be. So we had a you know pretty good conversation about uh, about that. And um, you know, the one other thing I would take away from from that conversation was um, one bright spot of a kind of <laughs> you know pretty bad week was. The way that those two women were were talking about the sort of racial diversity in the movement, because I was asking them, you know, if uh, if there's any tension between some of the white protesters and black protesters, and you know, is there a sense of like ownership by either side about mm. you know who who is who's leading the movement? And uh, she was really optimistic on, on that, and just really, she told me she you know she grew up in D.C. in a black neighborhood and didn't really know any white people I was like damn there are some really good white people out here I don't know any so I was like there are you know like some people who like stand with us sorry I know that sucks but I really don't know any um but you guys are good (laughs) how cheered she was to just be kind of like arm in arm with these other white kids who came down to uh to help out yeah honestly yeah when we go out there I don't think anybody sees color like we don't I don't see that somebody's I don't see that anybody's black I just look at them as my brothers and sisters you know and the white people like which made it more of a beautiful thing and it motivated me. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fascinating because that is something that we think of as the opposite, right? That like if someone grows in up in an affluent white community and they never meet a black person until they're older and to, and to see that on the, the opposite end, which, you know, we, we also know happens because of how 
the country <laughs> is kind of set up. And DC especially. It's, yes. You know, it's, so, it's such a segregated city and, you know, it's not uncommon to, to, to hear that on, you know, on either side. Ryan, as I think about and talk, talk to a lot of other journalists about how we're thinking about covering this moment, right? Like you want to you you want to give this moment the the respect historically that you know that it's going to need, right? Like what we write is going to kind of uh, is going to be what people look at is how this kind of shaped out, and I think the most about language, right? Like one thing I heard from a, a a community organizer and protester activist was, you know, why are we choosing to say riot instead of rebellion? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and so it's, it's, it's the language that we choose when we're talking about these things where, you know, riot and looting at times, they, they can be racially, you know, that, that term that everyone hates racially charged. They can, they can have racist undertones. Um, and then, yeah. What people are said, what I, what they told me was that Eugene, this is a rebellion. They said Eugene, this is about people being upset and angry, and they talked about, you know, how much people love to talk about the Boston Tea Party <laughs> as mm-hmm. as like a rebellion versus you know versus a riot, and we never call it that. Have you been having kind of those same conversations about language um, with other journalists and within yourself? Yeah, absolutely, and those are those those are two that are the the, the ones that. I think people are debating the most looting and and rioting and you want to be careful to to the best you can to separate people who frankly are not coming you know I'm just really can only talk about DC because that's what I saw up close who are who are um I think intention is probably like what's important to get at, and that is really hard because it's really hard to get in the mind of every single protester and what their intent intention right, is, right. right? And and I, and I think that's uh, that's a that's that's the difference between rebellion uh, and, and 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 rioting, perhaps. But rebellion feels like it has a much more of a a political component to it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're all more respectful of our, of rebellions, right? The country was born right. in in a, in a in rebellion, and you know social media has really changed it for journalists because we get called out so quickly if we make an error in the in the way that we describe mm. these things, and things are brought to right. our attention, uh, you know, with lightning speed. <laughs> Um, I do think that and there's a lot of legitimate criticism, but and this is what I wrote about in this piece, is you, you've, you've got to be really careful to separate the legitimate criticism about emphasis and context and make, making sure that you're not you know, exaggerating things or only focusing on people breaking into a store to steal some clothes and you know, using that to define everything that's going on across the country that would be you know that would be journalistic malpractice yeah but also be aware of and this happens you know in, with every political movement be be aware of people who are using those legitimate criticisms as a you know as a cudgel to prevent you from you know describing the the reality that uh, that you're seeing on the ground because it doesn't serve it wouldn't serve anyone's purpose to describe things anything other than you know they 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 actually are right right it's not it's not it's not our jobs and it and it, and it doesn't serve anyone something that I thought was really useful from like our leadership was that just use like protesters protest rioters riot looters loot like like yeah. making trying to make it it's, it's not always like you said it's not always that clean 
Um, exactly. But to but when you're when you're talking about something like this, there 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 does have to be some kind of I guess rule about what kind of language that we're using because that it, it, it shapes it for not just the people reading it now, but you know the kids that you know may, may I mean if I have children <laughs> and in fifteen years, you know what they read in a history book. Absolutely. You know we could talk. You talk about President Trump and he has yet to have, and I think objectively has yet to have an address to the nation that is comforting and that is about bringing people together. Yeah. But also. The, on the on the democratic side there hasn't that doesn't seem like they've they've been owning it either you know what i mean like the there there feels like a i don't know if i want to say complete cuz i don't want to be maybe unfair for people who are doing things but it is not it is not as public as some of the argue, like some of the press conferences they had on you know impeachment for example you know what i mean like there yeah, is yeah. we we know that they have the ability to work on the weekends and do press <laughs> conferences so like it it i think people are frustrated about that what do you have you been hearing that as well i was at the white house uh, protest uh, tuesday night and did talk to some activists about that and i remember one you know one conversation with with one young woman stands out where couldn't name any leaders that she was impressed mm. with in terms of how they've reacted to this situation. Any politicians that you are impressed with in terms of like how they responded to this? No. And you know, this is pretty much a, a, a youth movement. You know, most people look like they're in their 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 twenties, at least in D.C. And you know, I, I don't think they're looking to conventional politicians like the kind of people that uh hmm. you and i cover eugene you know it, maybe it just, they don't need it maybe that maybe like this generation of you know the youngest the, the the most diverse you know generation we've ever had and generations we've ever had in this country maybe they are finding that for them they don't need you know a bunch of older people in dc to tell them how to feel and, and what's next maybe they know they to them it feels like they want to demand it like they they want to they want to call the shots and i think you know maybe you know you know we both cover these people the traditional politicians are very they're risk averse Mm, mm -hmm. they are worried about maybe jumping into something that they don't understand you know, mm-hmm. is this movement going to backfire? Is it going to become defined by right. Antifa? Right. You know, they probably right. got advisors telling them to to tread cautiously. And then I think some of them might just think, you know, maybe they sit back and it, you know, it's not it's not their movement, and maybe they shouldn't um, be out front. I'll say personally, the most nuanced, interesting statement I've seen from any politician was from Obama, and you know, mm. I don't think that will shock anyone, but. <laughs> You know, as someone who has a background as an, as an organizer, has thought a lot about the efficacy of protesting, right? I thought he put out a good statement. I thought Biden's speech was, you know, hit, hit some of the, you know, had mm-hmm. some interesting moments. But neither of those men are elected right now. That's right. right? Like, that's that's the thing right. is, like, neither one of them are office holders right now. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Biden got a lot of kudos for that speech of his, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he is best when he is being comforter, right? Like he his empathy is is, is off the charts because of the things that have happened to him. But neither one of them are <laughs> in any kind of office. Yeah. I think that 
what we're what America is really finding is that this conversation is so much more complicated and nuanced than 280 characters and a three minute live hit on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News provides. I know. So I think I, I, and there's so many, you know, there's so many like alleys we could go down. Right. Um, and so we will continue to go. We down covered those a lot. Alleys. We did. It will. Con- we'll continue to go down those alleys and keep having this conversation. Um, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for talking, Eugene. Here are a few other things I've been watching this week. Tuesday night was the biggest primary night since Super Tuesday, and Representative Steve King, the nine-term Republican from Iowa, lost his primary. King has a history of saying racist things publicly, and the RNC's chair even said, quote, King's white supremacist rhetoric is totally inconsistent with the Republican Party. The bidding to host the Republican National Convention has begun. Earlier this week, President Trump announced that North Carolina would no longer host the convention. Roy Cooper, who is the governor of North Carolina, told Republican officials that the state could not hold a full-fledged convention because of health concerns. With North Carolina out of the question, Republicans are looking for a new state to host the convention. Enter Florida and their governor, Ron DeSantis. DeSantis threw Florida's name into the mix this week, saying the state could definitely host an in-person convention. And lastly, the New York Times drew condemnation this week for an opinion piece they ran by Senator Tom Cotton headlined, Send in the Troops, which sparked an outcry among reporters in the newsroom who said his publication endangers black reporters. All right, that's our show. Our producers, Annie Rees, our senior producers, Jenny Ament, and our executive producers, Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Scott is out for the next few weeks on paternity leave, but we have a bunch of great guest hosts. See you soon, and thanks for listening.